I just wanted to add a little warning right here at the beginning. Some rather unsavory topics will come up in this episode. Uh, torture, rape, murder, graphic forms of execution, slavery, all of these things are brought up when we're covering the life of King James. If that is not your cup of tea, you may want to skip this one. And if that's the case, I hope to see you next week. And if you don't feel like skipping this, well, let's get into it. Happy History Hump Day! I'm your host, Julian Rushbrook, and this little collection of sounds that's coming into your ears right now is my podcast, A History Most Queer. Each week, we can take a little dive into the lives and legacy of influential folks that are all members of the Alphabet Mafia. This week is the last in our little series about queer British monarchs. It is all in honor of the coronation of King Charles III, which is happening on Saturday of this week. It will be the first time that this ancient ceremony has been conducted in 70 years. Whether you are a fan of the royal family or can't really be bothered with them, it might be a good idea to just peek in on the event. The rituals date back over a thousand years in some places. That alone is worth seeing. But enough about King Charles and Queen Camilla, since this week we're going to be discussing one of his uh, predecessors, King James VI of Scotland and the I of England. Oh, and I've kind of broken up his life uh, into segments, and each segment's going to have a little quote from the King James Bible that is applicable for that particular section. So, it'll be good times. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. He would be the first English monarch of the Stuart dynasty. But that is only for England. For Scotland, he was the sixth great-grandson of Robert II. That dynasty had ruled in Scotland for over two centuries. The Stuarts did not have the troubles that the rulers in England did of having a different dynasty every few reigns or so. It was just such a dynastic crisis in England that actually led to the accession to the throne of England of James. The, be the beginning of the Stuart dynasty in England was due to the end of the Tudors. James's life would be sculpted by the last of the Tudors, the Virgin Queen Elizabeth I. England under the Tudor years was tumultuous. Having started out by being the victors of a civil war in the War of the Roses, this dynasty would be constantly under threat from people within the kingdom who, often rightly, felt that their own claims to the throne were stronger than the Tudors. It would be essential then to ensure that the line of succession was secure. This brings us to King Henry VIII, Elizabeth's father. Now, I won't go too much into Henry's history, 
but this is all needed to build some context and explain a lot of James's motivations. Henry VIII was never intended for the throne. It was his brother Arthur who had been the Prince of Wales. He would be married by proxy in the year 1501 to the youngest daughter of Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. The Spanish power couple were seen as a perfect family to ally the Tudors with. Not long after arriving in England and moving in together, the young couple were stricken with tragedy. Prince Arthur, only six months away from his 16th birthday, would die of an unknown illness on the 2nd of April, 1502. Catherine had recently recovered from the illness, and now the widow was alone in a strange land and did not even speak English. In order to keep the Spanish alliance, King Henry VII married his son, Henry, again with these people sharing names. Anyway, he married his son, Henry, to Catherine of Aragon. Catherine had stated that her marriage to his older brother had never been consummated due to the couple's ill health right at the beginning of the, of the marriage. A papal dispensation was granted to allow for Prince Henry to wed his widowed sister-in-law. This occurred when he came to the throne at the age of 17, with his wife now being 23 years old. King Henry VIII and Queen Catherine would have one child, a daughter named Mary. She would later become Queen Mary I. The couple would try, but never again be able to become pregnant. This was a problem. Child mortality was high, and pinning the kingdom's future to a single child and a girl to boot was dangerous. This was made worse by chilling relations with his wife's family. The Spanish Empire was on the rise, and England was in many ways a backwater kingdom compared to the contemporaries on the continent. One of Queen Catherine's ladies-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn, caught King Henry's eye. He desperately wanted to offload his current wife and wed the younger Anne. In the cultural background, the Protestant reformations were going strong. King Henry VIII had been a strong supporter of the Catholic faith and of the primacy of the Pope. This support even granted him from the Pope the title Defender of the Faith, which the current monarch still uses. Since there was such goodwill between Henry and the Vatican, he tried to have the previous papal dispensation dissolved so that his marriage to Catherine would have never happened, freeing him to marry Anne Boleyn. Pope Clement VII would not grant an annulment, however, perhaps due to a desire to not anger the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, who happened to be Queen Catherine's nephew. King Henry decided to split with Rome, allying the new Church of England with himself as the highest ecclesiastical authority with the ongoing Protestant movements. This freed him to divorce Queen Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn. He and the new queen would have only one child who lived, the Princess Elizabeth. What followed were a series of marriages. To remember how they ended, just repeat after me. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. It was definitely no picnic to marry Henry VIII. He did eventually have a son, Edward, who would become Edward VI at the age of nine. This king embraced Protestant reforms even more than his father, but he would die while only 15 years of age from an illness that had him saying, 
I am glad to die. A succession crisis arose. Lady Jane Grey, who's known as the Nine Day Queen, would be proclaimed queen, but as the name describes, she was only able to claim that title for nine days before Edward VI's elder sister, um, or elder half-sister, I should say, Mary, became queen. Now, prior to his dying, there had been marriage overtures to the Queen Mary of Scotland, whose grandmother, Margaret Tudor, was the sister of Henry VIII, his father. You may have to get out a little chart and start writing these names down. Anyway, her husband had been the young king of France who himself had died. An eight-year war, known as the Rough Wooing, was an attempt to secure a marriage with the young widowed queen and the child king, Edward. The Rough Wooing did not work, as Mary, Queen of Scots, was the mother of our subject, James. When England's Queen Mary, who had married the King of Spain, Philip II, died childless, most likely because of cancer, the hot potato of a crown landed on the head of the Princess Elizabeth, her half-sister. Once again, there would be an issue in England with succession, as Queen Elizabeth I never married or had children. So now, that's some context uh, in England for James. So let's head north to Scotland to help paint a picture of the forces up there that would shape him. James's grandfather, King James V of Scotland, would have one living child, Mary. He would die of either cholera or dysentery at only 30 years of age, and thus leave the throne to Mary, who was only six days old. James V would be the last monarch to die in Scotland until 480 years later when Queen Elizabeth II died at her estate in Balmoral. A struggle then began for the Regency of Scotland. Protestant forces were keen on the idea of the child queen marrying Henry VIII's son, Edward. Remember the rough wooing? While Catholic elements were leaning toward a French marriage, the French camp's forces won the day, and Queen Mary went to live in France at the age of five, as she was now engaged to be married to the then three-year-old heir to the French throne. They would be married over a decade later, but King Francis II would die at 16 years old in December of 1560, only two years after their marriage. Mary, Queen of Scots, now a widow, had never consummated the marriage with the French king and found herself in a very precarious situation. There was now more than one dowager queen in the French court, and that was too many. While her mother also having died, the teenage queen decided to return to her kingdom. It was basically jumping from the pan and into the fire. She returned to Scotland dressed head to toe in mourning white earning the title the White Queen. She, a Catholic, found a country that had a large contingent of Protestants that were not too pleased to see her. Still, she was tolerant of most of the Protestants, which would anger Catholic elements in the country. Her privy councillors were a majority Protestant, but she nonetheless trusted their advice. This may have been to keep herself favorable to English Protestants, 
as Elizabeth had not married yet, and that left Queen Mary as her heir apparent. Her period of mourning would not last long, as in July of 1565, she was married to her first cousin, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. He was a fellow Catholic, which aggravated Protestants in both Scotland and England. Queen Elizabeth was especially upset, as combined, any child that the pair would have had together would possess a stronger claim to the English crown than her own. Henry had been made king consort, but he desperately wanted it signed into law that were Mary to die before him, he would continue to rule until his death. The queen refused, and this created more strain, despite the couple finding themselves pregnant. Henry was convinced that she was pregnant by her private secretary, David Rizzio, and so had the man murdered in front of the queen. Luke chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. On the 19th of June, 1566, Queen Mary gave birth to her son, James. Despite this seemingly happy event, her ire toward her husband remained. Still, when he grew ill, she visited him regularly. He was resting in a former abbey, Kirk Field, and it seemed that the couple were becoming reconciled, despite the fact that the guy murdered her friend. Anyway, in the early morning hours of the 10th of February, 1567, only a few hours after the queen had visited her husband, an explosion destroyed Kirk Field, and the body of Henry was found dead in the courtyard, but from suffocation. It is widely believed that he had been murdered by James Hepburn, the fourth Earl of Bothwell. Lord Bothwell would continue to add pain to Queen Mary's life. After spending a few days with her son, James, at Stirling Castle, she was kidnapped by Lord Bothwell as she was returning to Edinburgh. She was raped by Bothwell, and on the 15th of May, the two were married. This was 12 days after Lord Bothwell had divorced his previous wife. Queen Mary probably was convinced that no other marriage was possible for her after the abduction and rape. Catholic lords were horrified that Mary would become wed to a Protestant, but doubly so, as he was the murderer of her previous husband. In short order, she was, on the 24th of July, forced to abdicate in favor of her infant son. The Scottish lords had turned against her, accusing her of murder and adultery. The deposed queen was only 24 years old. She was able to escape her captivity in Scotland and fled south to England. She had high hopes that her cousin, Queen Elizabeth, would help her in returning triumphant to Scotland and her son. Sadly, she would never see her son again. Elizabeth kept her imprisoned albeit comfortably, within England for the next 18 years. Never once would Queen Elizabeth meet her imprisoned cousin. She would, however, sign the dethroned queen's death warrant after she was found guilty of conspiring 
to overthrow the Protestant English queen. It is not clear that Mary actually tried to overthrow her cousin. Nonetheless, Mary Queen of Scots's head was separated from her shoulders on the 8th of February, 1587, at just 44 years of age. This left Queen Elizabeth's only heir as the young king, James VI of Scotland. James, as mentioned a moment ago, like his mother and her father before her, became king as an infant. He was only 13 months when the crown came to him. He would be raised Protestant rather than in the Catholic faith of his mother. At the age of 13, James met Esme Stuart, a French nobleman of Scottish heritage. Esme quickly became a favorite of the young king, eventually becoming the regent and Scotland's only duke as the first duke of Lennox. And I'll refer to him as Lennox from here on out. Lennox would often be showered with gifts, jewels of gold, rubies, and pearls were frequently given to the Duke by James. The closeness between the two raised quite a few eyebrows in the Scottish court, most especially due to the Duke's Catholic faith. He soon converted to Presbyterianism, however, and would remain so his entire life. Despite James being forced to exile the man years later, he would continue to correspond with the Duke, and he and his son, King Charles I, would care for Lennox's family for generations. King James VI was infatuated with the exotic Frenchman, but this handsome male favorite would not be James's last. James VI was extremely well-educated. He would author several books and works of poetry throughout his life. The scientific revolution that was underway in Europe had now come to Scotland and later England. It was this love of learning and curiosity about the universe that would lead to the continued patronage of William Shakespeare and his band of performers. The works of John Donne would also come about in this reign. Unfortunately, some of the persecution that would happen under his governance would be cloaked in a bastardized form of the scientific method. Like his cousin to the south, James was determined to find a middle way between the more radical Protestant and Catholic sides within his country. Exodus chapter 22, verse 18. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. James showed no interest in women, keeping instead the company of other men. In order to secure his position, however, he would need to marry. So in August of 1589, the 22-year-old Scottish king was married by proxy to the 14-year-old Anne of Denmark. A more face-to-face -face marriage was to happen in Scotland. While attempting to sail from Denmark, however, Anne's ship was caught up in a storm and had to find safe harbor in Norway. James would then go to Norway to help to go collect his queen and the pair were married in Oslo on the 23rd of November. Later on, they would return from Copenhagen and further storms threatened the couple, but they made it safely back to Scotland. The issue of the storm would lead to one of James's less savory contributions to history. The king had become fascinated by the witch trials that were going on in Europe. 
When one, when one such trial happened in his native Scotland, he could not help but attend. While there, Agnes Sampson, a midwife and healer, had been accused of witchcraft. The widowed single mother was accused of using an image of the king and calling on the powers of Satan to sink the ship, killing the king and queen. She was summoned to Holyrood Palace and interrogated by King James, but she refused to confess to the wild accusations. She was tortured, and all of the hair on her head and body was shaved off. She was then forced to have her body searched for a devil's mark, which is often a mole or wart, perhaps even an age spot. The devil's mark was believed to be a secret nipple by which a witch's familiar spirit would suckle. After a supposed devil's mark was found on or around her genitals, the poor woman, under extreme pain and humiliation, broke down and confessed to every accusation. To his credit, James was still skeptical, as torture would often lead to false confessions, just so that people would have the pain end. So Agnes proceeded to tell the king exactly what he and his new bride had said to each other on their wedding night in Oslo when the two were alone. This convinced the sovereign and sadly sealed Agnes's fate. On the 28th of January, 1591, Agnes Sampson was taken to be executed. She was garroted or strangled to death publicly and her body was then burned at the stake. The horrible and gruesome death of an obviously innocent woman would light a fire within James. One of his great literary works, Demonology, was published in 1597. It would be published again in England in 1603 when he succeeded to the throne there. This book would become a manual and be a philosophical framework upon which the Scottish, English, and later colonial American witch trials were built upon. A wave of fear of demonic possessions, fairy magic, and dark doings would sweep through the land, exciting the imagination of James's kingdoms for a century or more. Most of the people that were accused of being in league with the devil were poor, older, single, or widowed women. This is due to the belief that women were more susceptible to demonic forces due to their hypersexual natures. You see, at the time, it was believed that women were overly interested in sex, and that it was men who were less interested. It was sort of like a mirror image of how society broadly tends to look at people today. Likewise, women were considered inferior in general due to the doctrine of original sin in Christianity. They were the perfect tools by which Satan could wreak havoc upon the world. Witch trials were also convenient ways to get rid of women that did not know their place. Descriptions of accused witches often were of older women who were independent and did not perfectly fit the submissive femininity that the culture at the time demanded. Revelations chapter 17, verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth 
have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. James and Anne would have three children that would survive into adulthood. Sadly, the eldest, Henry, would die at the age of 18. Two of James's other literary works would spell out the concept of divine right of kings and were meant to function as a guidebook to kingship for his heir. These lessons would be embraced by his son Charles, but they would not be helpful bits of advice, as it was this King Charles I who would have his head separated from the rest of his body during the English Civil War a few decades later. James would have many affairs outside of his marriage with Queen Anne. Anne Murray was a mistress of his while in Scotland. After Queen Elizabeth of England's death in 1603, the English welcomed the new King James I of England and commented that with James's very different and more measured personality in comparison to Elizabeth's aggressive and combative nature, quote, Elizabeth was king, now James is queen. He would become involved with the Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers, and the Earl of Somerset, Robert Carr. Buckingham is said to have tumbled with and kissed the king as a mistress. And a contemporary account claims that it is well known that the King of England fucks the Duke of Buckingham. Further evidence of such sexual and romantic liaisons were found in letters from the Duke to the King, where the expressions of love are hard to square with the idea that the two men were just, quote, really close friends especially since they were said to share the same bed, something that a king just would have no need to do, unless he wanted to. Once the crowns of both Scotland and England sat upon James's head, it was his mission to see that the two realms would become joined into a single entity, Great Britain. It would take until his great-granddaughter, Queen Anne's reign, for this dream to be fully realized. In England, there was a fear of the country being overrun by poor Scots who would swarm like vermin, crowding the cities and taking jobs from the hard-working English. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Ye have heard that it is said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. King James I of England would survive one of the more elaborate assassination attempts in history. In 1605, on the night of the 4th of November, going into the 5th, a man, Guy Fox, was discovered in the basements of the Parliament, guarding 36 barrels full of gunpowder. The plan, led by the Catholic Robert Catesby, was to obliterate the English Parliament building with the Lords and the King in it. The next day was supposed to be the opening of Parliament. The conspirators had a plan to install the Catholic daughter of King James, Elizabeth, who was then only nine years of age, on the throne thus returning the kingdom back to Catholic rule that had ended with the death of Queen Mary I. A great many of the conspirators were found 
captured and tried for treason. And treason called for the death penalty. Guy Fawkes himself was supposed to be first hanged until he lost consciousness, then drawn and quartered. And that's drawn as being dragged by a horse to the place of execution, then disemboweled, often severing a man's genitals, and then chopping the body into four bits. His neck broke, however, during the hanging portion of this execution, probably due to Fox jumping to strengthen the fall so that he could die without having to go through the painful stuff that would follow after the hanging. To this day, on the 5th of November, the English celebrate the thwarting of the gunpowder plot by burning effigies of Guy Fawkes on bonfires and enjoying fireworks. Catholics in the realm were forced now to take oaths of loyalty to the king, denouncing the papacy. While he had the best of intentions to keep the peace between the Catholics and Protestants, the gunpowder plot would cause James to take these measures. Still, he would allow those Catholics who had taken the oath to continue working in higher levels within the government. While the king and parliament survived, the two would often be at odds with each other. When considering the matters of union, the English were not exactly inclined to merge with their Scottish neighbors. Still, under James's reign, peace was kept on the island and conflicts with the Spanish and French were avoided. It truly was an age of peace and artistic flowering. This peace also brought about great economic development. Those developments would pave the road for a British empire. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 Servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Under his reign, colonization was the goal. Spain and Portugal had formed these extractive tentacles around the globe, funneling wealth and resources from the Americas, Africa, and Asia into the Iberian Peninsula. James wanted to get in on this. One of the first colonies was the plantation of Ulster, in what is now modern-day Northern Ireland. Today we are still seeing issues in Ireland due to these actions. With Brexit throwing the hard-fought efforts of peace into doubt, all of it gets its start here with James. Colonies would be founded in the New World as well, Jamestown and other colonies such as Cooper's Cove in Newfoundland would be formed. All these new lands would need workers. The East India Company had been formed under the reign of Elizabeth I, and it continued its efforts to secure silk, tea, spices, and other commodities for the people of England. But they needed something like the East India Company, but for workers. In 1618, King James would grant a patent to a new company, the Royal African Company. Gold and precious woods were imported commodities that the English desired. But above all else, the need for slaves in Jamestown and elsewhere really 
was the reason for this company existing. This was another dark blight added to King James's legacy. Over the next few centuries, millions of Africans would be held in bondage and transported to the other side of the world to labor under the crack of an overseer's whip. The legacy of the transatlantic slave trade is overwhelming in the manner in which it still affects our world in the 21st century. First Peter chapter 1 verse 25 But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Perhaps the other most important legacy of King James would be the King James authorized English translation of the Bible. In 1611, the translation was completed and this book is still in use to this present day. Many common phrases that are used daily can be traced to this translation, like a man after his own heart, at their wit's end, holier than thou, and scapegoat are just a small handful of common phrases and words that pepper the English language today. James's wife, Queen Anne, would die in 1619 at the age of 44 of dropsy, which nowadays we would call edema, a swelling of the limbs or the whole body from a retention of fluid. At the beginning of their marriage, the couple seemed to get along quite well, but as time progressed, the Queen was sidelined by men like the Duke of Buckingham. The last years of her life were rather solitary. The King would remain unmarried after Anne's death. His own health over the next few years declined. He suffered from gout and arthritis. He'd lost his teeth and was known to drink heavily. His Queen had often been irritated by the sheer amount of alcohol that he consumed. He would die on the 27th of March, 1625, of dysentery, at the age of 58. His son Charles would succeed him as Charles I. King James VI of Scotland and the I of England was buried in Westminster Abbey in London. In assessing his life, there are conflicting aspects to this king. On the one hand, he was a patron of the arts and he worked hard to ensure that the kingdoms were at peace with their neighbors in Europe. And he didn't want the countries to become mired in the religious wars that happened on the con continent, like the Thirty Years' War. On the other hand, his writings would condemn thousands of women over the next century or more to torture and death for the perceived crime of witchcraft. And millions of African men, women, and children would be sold into a terrible life of slavery. Perhaps these things cannot truly be reconciled. He's like us, after all, a multitude filled with aspects that are evil and likewise angelic. Well, that's the life of King James, the sixth of Scotland and the first of England. I'd like to give a special thanks to Pixabay for their fun little sound effects. I think these add nice little bits of punctuation uh, and, and give a little dimension to this podcast. Please rate A History Most Queer wherever you listen. 
And if you want to get in touch with us, you can fire off an email to ahistorymostqueer at gmail.com. Come by and check out the Instagram page at ahistorymostqueer. We will have photos of each week's subject matter. It helps to put a face with the story. I hope everyone has a safe week, take care, and we'll see you on the next History Hump Day. Goodbye.